Hey, go ahead and make your way back to your seats, please. I always hate cutting off this meet and greet time too soon, so hit pause in these conversations. You can pick them up after the service. Hey, uh, I'm going to ask you guys to turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 32. That's where we'll be this morning. While you're turning there, I'll introduce myself. My name is Jay Frymeyer, and I'm on staff here at Providence Road. Um, if you've missed the past few weeks, well, really, for a while, we've been in Genesis. Um, but these past two weeks specifically, we've been looking at the life of Jacob. And so this morning, we're going to continue on and, and look at his life. Uh, but I'd encourage you to go back and check the podcast if you missed those first two weeks. Uh, th- this morning kind of builds off of those two in particular. So uh, check those out. Um, so if you have uh, your Bibles in Genesis 32, and if not, I believe uh, the verses will be on the screens here for you. You can follow along with me. This is verse 32. The same night he arose and took his two, two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men, and you've prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank, we thank you for how you speak to us in your word. And I pray that this morning you would give us open ears, open eyes, open hearts to receive what you would have for us this morning. Send your spirit, God, to illuminate this text for us. And I pray ultimately that for those in this room that we cannot stand or we cannot walk or we're limping this morning, that, that we would fall on Jesus as we just sang, that for those of us in here who are hurting, who are wounded, that Jesus would be a rock. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Charles Spurgeon is one of the more <clears throat> well-known preachers in the history of Christianity. If you uh, find yourself amongst Baptist circles, particularly uh, Reformed Baptist circles, you're going to find pastors geeking out over Spurgeon like the Sandlot boys geek out over Babe Ruth, right? You guys familiar with the Sandlot? The Sultan of Swat, the Colossus of Cloud, the King of Crash, all these things. Baptist preachers are calling Spurgeon the prince of preachers, the champion for Reformed theology, and on and on and on. And for good reason. Let me, let me share with you some things that happened over the course of his life. There's more available written material by Charles Spurgeon than any other Christian author. And much of what's out there by him are sermons that he preached that are now available in manuscript form. Before the age of 20, he had preached over 600 times. Before the age of 20, he had preached over 600 times. When he began pastoring New Park Street Church in 1854 at the age of 20, the congregation had 232 members. At the end of his tenure, 38 years later, it had over 5,300 members. 
At the time, it was the largest independent congregation in the world. Spurgeon once spoke to an audience of nearly 24,000 people without a microphone. Can you think about that? I don't know if I could speak to like 200 people without a microphone. He often read six books a week and could later recall what he had read and where he had read it years after he had read them. In 1865, Spurgeon sold 25,000 copies of his sermons every week, and they were translated into 20 different languages. Now that's a lot of podcast downloads, folks. He's estimated to have preached to over 10 million people in the course of his life. He would often wait until Saturday evening to choose his Sunday morning sermon, and he would rarely take uh, into the pulpit with him more than one page of notes. I have more than a page on just Spurgeon's life with me right here. He wrote multiple hymns. He founded a pastor's college and even an orphanage following in the footsteps of his friend, George Mueller. Spurgeon was uniquely and exceptionally gifted by God and he used his gifts for the kingdom of God. But he also experienced an incredible amount of hardships and suffering over the course of his life. Let me share with you just a few. At the age of 22, he was preaching to a crowd of over 10,000 people. Again, no microphone. Uh, This was a new venue for his church because they they had outgrown the venue they were in. And someone in the crowd shouted, fire. And so several pockets within this venue began freaking out, really, because they thought there was actually a fire. And so uh, in the midst of all this chaos, seven people were trampled and died and numerous others were injured. Someone later said that uh, he was overcome by the tragedy of this event and Uh, He never fully recovered from the mental anguish caused by it. His only two children, twin boys, were were born the next day. And uh, he and his wife, Susanna, could never have more kids after that. Nine years later, at the age of 33, his wife became disabled. She was an invalid and could rarely hear him preach uh, for the rest of his life. Physically, Spurgeon suffered from gout, rheumatism, and another disease that caused his kidneys to be inflamed. In a letter to a friend, he once wrote, I thought a cobra had bitten me and filled my veins with poison, but it was worse, it was gout. For over half his ministry, he dealt with increasingly recurrent pain. On top of all this, he endured public ridicule and criticisms throughout his ministry. All of these things likely contributed to his lifelong battle with depression. At the age of 24, he recalls having his spirit sunken so low that he began weeping like a baby, and he had no idea why he was even crying. There's much to like about Spurgeon, but perhaps what I love most about him is the way in which he viewed his hardships and his suffering. In all he endured, he had an unwavering belief in the sovereignty of God in all his afflictions. He once told his students, I dare say the greatest earthly blessing that God can give any of us is health, with the exception of sickness. Sounds crazy, right? I'm afraid that all the grace that I've got of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But the good that I've received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. It is the best book in a minister's library. Spurgeon found that the best university for the Christian is in the school of hardship and suffering. It's the school of wrestling with God that we learn most about who God is, who we are, and that in all of this, we need more of him. And this is precisely where we find Jacob this morning. Jacob's life was full of struggling. If you've been here the past few weeks or are familiar at all with Genesis, you know it was really one huge struggle. At least that's what it feels like. 
Let's look back briefly for some context. In Genesis 25, uh, we are first introduced to Jacob. We learn that he is a twin, and within their mother's womb, uh, I, I believe the ESV says they're struggling together. Their mother, Rebecca, becomes anxious by what's happening, and the Lord comes to her says, and says, two nations are in your womb, two peoples within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. Rebecca gives birth first to Esau and then to Jacob, and you know that Jacob's grabbing Esau's heel as, as he comes out. And so he's given his name Jacob because it literally means to cheat or to deceive. Not long after this, we read about how Jacob manipulates his older brother into stealing his birthright in a moment of weakness. Esau, seemingly placing little value on his status as the firstborn in the family, sells his birthright to his younger brother in exchange for a bowl of stew. Jacob doesn't just cheat his brother, he also deceives his father. Isaac, being old and on his deathbed, wanted to bless Esau following the custom of the day for the firstborn of the family. Instead, Rebekah and Jacob concocted a plan to where Jacob would receive this blessing instead of Esau. Rather than Esau being the one who would receive, quote, the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine, Jacob receives this blessing. It's Jacob who would be served by the peoples and would have nations bow down to him. It's Jacob who would be lord over his brothers. This is what he stole from Esau. So what was once merely a contentious relationship between brothers becomes all-out hatred. Esau devises his plan to kill Jacob. Jacob catches wind and he flees. And that's where we picked up last week with Blake. He's all alone out in the middle of nowhere. Jacob's sent to his uncle's house partly to flee his brother Esau and his wrath, partly to find a wife. Because how can you have, you know, a bunch of people in your family if you don't have a wife? And so he goes to, to Laban to find this and it's on his way there that he encounters the God of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac, for the very first time. God meets him in a dream and he promises, and the promises made once to Abraham and Isaac are now made to Jacob. After this, Jacob meets Laban. They have a month-long family reunion, basically. They party for a month. And after that, uh, Jacob, uh, Laban comes to Jacob and says, hey, it's not right that you would serve me for nothing. You name your wages and I'll give it to you. So Jacob uh, being attracted to Laban's younger daughter, Rachel, says, hey, I'll serve you for seven years if you give me your daughter's hand in marriage. And I'm sure most of you are familiar with this story. After seven years, he works for him. And this next part blows my mind how this even happens. Like after seven years, they have this wedding feast and he wakes up the next morning and finds out it's not Rachel, it's her sister Leah. Um, yeah, I guess it was dark and they were, you know, maybe intoxicated. I don't know, but I, I don't, I just don't understand that. He wakes up surprised, shocked, uh, upset, all, all the emotions. He feels them all and uh, goes to Laban and says, hey, you tricked me. Uh, they work out this, this other deal for seven more years, then he can have Rachel. So he works 14 years and he's not just married to Rachel. He's also married to Leah. So his life of turmoil continues. He deeply loves Rachel, but it seems that he just merely tolerates Leah but God saw this and he found favor with Leah, right? And so she begins to have children and yet it's Rachel who is barren. Some more shady stuff's going on. Rachel gives her servant to Jacob thinking this is the way that God would give her children. But finally, after that, Jacob and Rachel, trying to get all the names right here, Jacob and Rachel have a son, Joseph. And it's then, right after Joseph is born, that Jacob says, you know what? It's time to go home. It's time to go home. So in the midst of all this crazy family drama going on, I think there's, a, there's about a 20-year span here in all this. All this craziness is happening. 
uh, Jacob is serving Laban and his, his flocks are just multiplying. It seems that whatever Jacob touches, it just increases greatly. And so Laban is, is the direct beneficiary of this. And so he goes to Jacob and says, all right, if you're leaving, let's work out a deal. It's not fair that you just go and, and you get nothing in return. So it's, you name your wages again. So again, they work out this deal. Uh, Jacob says that you give me all the, I believe it's the spotted, speckled, and striped animals, they'll be mine. And so it's very clear that if, if the animals got a spot or speckle or stripe, it's Jacob's. If not, uh, it would be Laban's. Uh, only right after they make this deal, Laban separates all those from the herd and sends his sons out with them. And so he removes them all from the herd. And of course, Jacob finds out about this. He's in control over all of them. And so again, I, I don't know how this works. There are sticks that if you expose them, are you getting anybody else confused by this stuff? Like you just expose these, it, it's almost like a Sharpie or something, but it's white uh, and it, you expose it. And when the stronger of the herd would go to mate, he would expose these sticks and they would have these spots and speckles. And I guess it was permanent. I guess it just stayed there. Uh, it didn't just wash off. And then when the, when the weaker of the flock, uh, the more feeble would come, um, he would remove them. And so the stronger of the herd became Jacob's and the weaker of the herd became Laban's. Again, I don't understand how it all works, but that's how it happened. Jacob got a bunch of stuff. Um, after all this goes down, God comes to Jacob and says, all right, it's time to go. Take your stuff. It's time to go. So Jacob's terrified of Laban because of everything that's happened, especially this, this latest incident. Uh, of course, they both know what's going on, but it seems like they're not talking about it. Just this weird, like Jerry Springer type stuff. Is he still around, Jerry Springer? I don't know. Um, so he takes off without Laban knowing. Laban tracks him down three days later. Rachel stole some stuff from, from her dad, some, some household gods, and Laban knew it, but he couldn't prove it. There's an altercation partially about the gods, but, but it really feels like it's, it's this culmination of 20 years of like pent up frustration between the two. And so they make this deal that, that from this point on, neither of them will try to harm the other. They make this covenant. They set up some rocks, I think, and, and they both go their separate ways. So, so here's Jacob. This, this is where we are this morning. Here's Jacob with, with all this lifetime of struggle behind him, all this turmoil, all this trickery and deceit from even those closest to him. And, and he can finally turn around and look forward. And, and there's one major obstacle in his way, and it's his brother Esau. Now Esau, this is the brother who he had deceived lied to, and he's stolen from years before. This is his brother who the last time they had seen each other was breathing murderous threats towards him and wanted to kill him for stealing his birthright and the blessing of his father. So this wave of fear comes over him naturally, right? Like if you're facing, you're about to meet someone who wants to kill you. I don't I can't even imagine that, but like he really thinks that Esau wants to kill him. He sends some messengers to meet him and uh, they return and say, sure enough, Esau's there and he's coming to meet you, but he's not coming by himself. He's coming with 400 men. Um, and so this wave of fear now becomes just all out panic. I, I, I can only imagine that he is just, you know, excruciatingly terrified of, of his brother and what's coming and it's coming tomorrow. Here he is the night before, it's coming tomorrow. So the first thing, this is, this is the first thing that he thinks of. All right, I've got a lot of stuff. I'm gonna break it all in half including my wives and my servants. I'm going to send Leah over here with some of her servants and my servants and like half my herd. And the other half is Rachel and her servants and my servants and, and half my herd. And that way, when Esau comes to kill me, he'll find one of the camps, he'll kill them, but I'll still have half my stuff, right? This is the first thing he thinks about. The second thing he thinks about is, hey, I should probably pray, <laughs> right? 
So, so I'm trying to get the timeline right. I think it was 20 years prior, again, that he has his first encounter with God. And he prays to him and, and, and he says, namely, he, he's reminding God what he said he would do, namely that you would do me good. You, you, would, you would do Jacob good to greatly increase my offspring. But still, Jacob continues with this plan. He knows he's up against a hard deadline. Esau's coming. He's not slowing down. He's coming with these men. Divides his stuff, sends them out. In addition, he sends out droves of animals to meet Esau. And essentially what he's wanting to do is just kill Esau with kindness. Like he's just gonna give him all this stuff because he's got a ton of things. Like he's got, it seems like he has just so many animals. I, I don't know that we get a for sure number, but he's just got a bunch of stuff. And he just starts sending all this stuff to Esau, hoping that by the time Esau comes to him, he decides, well, hey, I don't want to kill him because he's given me a lot of stuff now. Um, so sure, Jacob has prayed to God, but he's got plan A, B, and C lined up here. Now here he sits the night before. All of his stuff has just crossed the river. He's probably thinking back on this lifetime of turmoil, and he's looking ahead to probably the most fearful moment of his life. He's alone with his thoughts. He can't sleep because tomorrow, again, he's gonna die. And in the middle of all this, some dude comes out of the woods and spears him to the ground. Like, what in the world? Like, we're, immediately we're given no context. Like, it just says, and he's alone. And then he starts wrestling with this guy. He doesn't know who this guy is. He, does, he just comes out of nowhere, body slams him, and they just start duking it out, right? That, that sounds crazy. Now, before we look ahead to the fight, we're gonna get there. I want to look back because I want to propose that in this mysterious wrestling match, God was actually answering Jacob's prayer earlier that night. Let's read it. This is in verse 9 through 12, still, still Genesis 32. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But God, you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So again, Jacob is reminding God as if God forgets, right? He's reminding God, hey, this is what you said. You told me to go here. God, you told me to go to this land. And I think internally he's thinking, well, how can I go to this land if I'm gonna die? But he prays to God and he said, you told me to go here. He acknowledges, I'm not worthy of this. I'm not worthy of your goodness to me. I'm not worthy of your steadfast love. Would you please deliver me from Esau's hand? And again, reminds him something that God has said to him before. I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. In the moment he sees, man, it just can't, how can this be so? How can these things be true? I think he's doubting the promises of God. I'm pretty convinced at this point that Jacob is just concerned with himself, right? We've seen over the course of his life that he's made a whole lot of selfish choices with no regard for who he might hurt and how he might hurt them in the process. I think that here he's still concerned merely with the things that can make Jacob great. So he wants, he wants a lot of kids. He wants a lot of stuff. He wants a lot of land. He wants a lot of animals, all these things that would make his name great. Jacob wants Jacob to prosper. That's what's happening here. But here's the deal. God also wants Jacob to prosper, doesn't he? 
but they define prosperity in different ways, don't they? Jacob is afraid that his life is about to end, but God is waiting for Jacob to come to the end of himself. In this prayer, Jacob is asking for deliverance. God comes to his rescue. He delivers him from himself. Now, again, looking back, despite his life on the run, despite his life of deceit and theft, despite God blessing him with material wealth, despite the growing family, despite being delivered from Laban, despite his meeting at Bethel 20 years prior, none of these things ultimately brought Jacob to the end of himself. So it seems fitting that God answers Jacob's prayer with one more struggle, a lifetime of brawling in his most fearful moment with one more brawl. Jacob has the fight of his life, fighting for his life, and he gets wrapped up in the heat of the battle. He no longer has time to think ahead to Esau and how he's going to live tomorrow. He's thinking, I have to live tonight. This guy, this guy could kill me. So we see in, in, our verse, in our text this morning, this mystery man has incredible strength. After he realized that Jacob was going to put up a decent fight, I don't know if Jacob looked like a pansy, but it says like, hey, he realized that Jacob's putting up a struggle here. He dislocates his hip. I think you'd be hard pressed to find any random guy in here or maybe anyone you know that can on a whim dislocate another man's hip. I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say that none of you in here can do that. Like, hey, I'm, I'm fighting this guy. I wanna kind of knock him out here. Let's dislocate his hip. I, that, I don't even know how that happens, but he does it. The scriptures say that he touched his hip socket. Now, I've got many questions about this text. I, I wasn't able to answer all of them. And this was one. Was this a simple touch? Was this a blow with force? Either way, we see the strength of this man. And yet we also see Jacob's resolve. I will not let you go unless you bless me. He's resilient. Despite this dislocated hip, which has got to be just so painful, right? He's holding on for dear life. And he says, I, I, I just want you to bless me. The man asks his name and he agrees, he agrees to bless him. And Jacob responds with his name, the cheater, the liar, the deceiver. In, in, in sharing his name with this man, he's, he's not just saying a word. He's saying who he really is, the deceiver, the liar, the cheater. That's when our mystery man says something that completely changes Jacob's perspective on what's happening. He changes his name. Now, before we move too far past this, I, I want to ask you in this room, who are you going to let change your name? Is there anyone in your life that you would allow to change your name? You know who I name? I name my son. I name my daughter. I name my kids. You know who I will not let name me? Any of you guys. Um, or it, anyone. Uh, I'm, my first response would be, on, on what authority do you have to, to rename me? Okay, like what? Well, who do you think you are? And this is precisely the point. This is what gets Jacob's attention. Verse 28, you shall no longer be called Jacob. This man is speaking with authority. You are no longer called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and you have prevailed. Whoa. Think about that. He's striven with God and with men. He's prevailed. I, I just... I just imagine Jacob's tight grip loosening and, and, and embracing the moment and realizing what has just happened. Quickly before he leaves, Jacob is grasping like, tell me who you are, what is your name? 
The man refuses but blesses him anyways, and he leaves as mysteriously as, as he appeared. Jacob convinced that he's just seen God face to face. He renames this place and is amazed that his life has been spared. And I believe it's in this divine moment that Jacob's life is forever changed. At our house, um, I've got this pose that I get into. I, I crouch down on the floor and I cover my head. And, and it's a trigger, it's a symbol for my son, Henry, that daddy's ready to fight, right? Dad's in the room. If you've got boys, maybe your daughters do this too. You know it. So I, I, get, I get on the ground and I cover my head and I just wait. Sometimes he's in the room, sometimes he's not, but he'll come around the corner and it's like, oh yeah. Okay, here we go. So every time I'll, I'll get down uh, on my knees, I'll cover my head and he'll jump on my back and he's just waiting. Like, is, is daddy gonna buck me off? Is he gonna flip me over and put me in a headlock? Like, how, how's this gonna go down? But he's ready. Like, he's, like, this is his zone, man. He would fight me all the time if he could. So on occasion, he thinks he gets the best of me, right? He'll prounce around the house, occasionally puff out his chest, like, <laughs> look what I did to daddy. But guys, let's, be, let's get this straight. In a moment, I could crush him. <laughs> Any moment, I could crush him. Charlie Dates tells us why God does not prevail over Jacob. God was with him, working for him. And God does not prevail against Jacob because he was trying to build something in him and break something out of him. God let Jacob win. He could have made him the victim, but instead he made him the victor. Jacob's limp is a tangible reminder that he's been with God and that God has not left him. So whether this was an angel or God himself, and there is disagreement over this. I'm not here to argue this this morning. This person was clearly sent by God. That's what we know for sure. This person was sent by God. And could he not in a moment have, could he, any moment he could have been victorious over Jacob? Could he not have crushed him like I could crush my son? We saw his strength in the blow to the hip. He, he was just toying with him. Jacob was fortunate to leave with only a dislocated hip. One commentator sums up Jacob's life in this fight for us. The conflict brought to a head the battling and groping of a lifetime. And Jacob's desperate embrace vividly expressed his ambivalent attitude to God of love and enmity, defiance and dependence. You see, it was against God, not Esau or Laban, that he had been pitting his strength and he just now realized it. Yet the initiative had been God's, as it was this night, to chasten his pride and challenge his tenacity. The crippling and the naming show that God's ends were still the same. He would have all of Jacob's will to win, to attain and obtain, yet purged of self-sufficiency and redirected to the proper object of man's love, God himself. It was defeat and victory in one. After the maiming, combativeness had turned to a dogged dependence. And Jacob emerged, catch this guys, Jacob emerged broken, named, and blessed. His limping would be a lasting proof of the reality of the struggle. It had been no dream and there was sharp judgment in it. The new name would attest his new standing. It was both a mark of grace and an accolade to live up to. The blessing this time was untarnished, both in the taking and in the giving. It was his own, uncontrived and unmediated. So God hears his prayer. God initiates this struggle 
And God gives Jacob what he's been searching his entire life. And I believe that was rest for his restless soul. God gives Jacob victory in defeat. We read about how difficult Jacob's life was and how he's about to die. In the midst of all this, he's forced to deal, deal with something inconvenient at best and yet life-threatening at worst. And I think it's easy for us then to quickly run to the ways in which we are forced to wrestle with God and with man in our own lives. Your kids don't listen to you. Maybe they never listen to you. At least it feels like, feels that way. The promotion at work never came. Your car keeps breaking down. You have broken relationships with family members. Your bills are adding up. The cancer has come back. Maybe you're lazy and you feel that God is calling you to act or to do. And you're fighting against God because you're, you're lazy. You don't, want, you don't want to do what you know God is asking or calling you to do. Maybe like Jacob, you're reaping the consequences of a life of sin. In all of this, you are wrestling with God and with man. Um, it's, it's no secret at this point that Brooke and I are in a season of wrestling. And um, I honestly hope it's, it's, it's the greatest amount of wrestling we'll ever have to do. It kind of feels uh, over, overwhelming. Uh, we shared with you guys a month ago a little bit about what's going on. But for those of you who don't know, I'll, I'll kind of give you the full picture. Um, back in mid-April, I was just doing some everyday things that, you know, I do. I'm just pretty active and I hurt my back. And it was about a week later that I, I really hurt my back. And I don't know what happened in that moment, but uh, there were a few days I had trouble walking. And for about five or six weeks, it, it was just really inflamed. There was a lot of, a lot of pain. And so since then, I've had several x-rays and MRI, and we're trying to figure out what's going on and, and trying to figure out the best plan of action moving forward. About a month after that, our air conditioner went out. Um, and listen, I get it. First world problems, right? Like you can do without it. But when this happens, it's, it's, it's just inconvenient and it costs a lot of money. And so uh, at the time, these two things combined, we thought, man, this is, this is, kind, of, this is kind of a struggle. Like we got to get through this and this is hard. Um, but we would later find out that these were minor things um, for what was coming. Uh, I think it was June 20th that we went in for just the most routine ultrasound. Um, we were ready to find out if we were having a boy or girl. And they called us back in later that day, which we thought, well, that's, you know, odd, but we'll go. And we had got, we got no indication at our previous meeting that something was up and we go in and, and it's there that we find out that our sweet baby girl, Eliza, has Potter syndrome. And um, it affects 0.01% of all babies. It's, uh, it just means that she has no kidneys. And because she has no kidneys, there's no amniotic fluid in, uh, in the womb. And so because there's no amni amniotic fluid, her lungs won't properly develop. And so if she's born alive, soon after, she'll struggle to do life's most basic functions, that's breathe. And so we know that probably on October 9th, we're gonna go and, and we're gonna welcome our baby girl into the world and we're gonna say goodbye the same day. And this, uh, you know, this is overwhelming, right? Um, there are good days and bad days. Um, the first few weeks were, were pretty excruciating. And then for a while, it, 
you know, we kind of settled in and, and realized that, okay, this is, this is what we're dealing with. And we know that in September, October is going to be pretty hard. And then it was about three or four weeks ago, I think it was July 19th, we found out that my, my stepmom, Brenda, who's been um, battling stage four cancer for about three or four years now, um, is, um, she's been given two months to live. They put her on hospice. And uh, the cancer's been so aggressive that the treatments just can't slow it down. And so the, the culmination of these two things has brought out the worst in my family. Uh, lifelong professing Christians are, are asking us why we're not aborting Eliza because she's gonna die anyways, right? Um, some in our family are turning to medication to numb the pain and just avoid all of it, everything. And uh, others avoid us at all costs because, gosh, in these moments, what do you say? Um, the weight of all this, it, it, it could feel, I can't remember who, I think it was Jill Perry last week. I was like, man, are you ready for it to stop? Like, aren't you saying like, God, we're faithful now, okay? Can you just make it end? Now I'm kind of, I'm a little scared to ask like, what more could be, what, what more can we go through? Like, I'm afraid to ask that. Um, I've told some of you that I'm, I'm tired and it's not the kind of tired that like a good night's rest can fix. Like, I'm just exhausted. The hardest part in all of this is that we know that the worst is coming. Like, when, when you see, I don't know, I'm sure some of you in this room have, have seen a loved one die and be in their last days. It's, it's excruciating. Brenda has lost like 20 or 30 pounds, I think, and her stomach is growing. And, and she's, she's just, she lies in bed all day. That's, that's all she does. She can't eat, she can't function, and she's just in so much pain. And I find myself wanting her to die now just so she's not in pain. And Eliza is fine right now. She's got a heartbeat. She kicks occasionally, though it's rare. She, she's got breath in her lungs now. And yet we know that there's coming a day where she won't as soon. Like Jacob, I find myself clinging to God in the midst of our most fearful moments. And I'm, I'm not asking, God, would you bless me? I, I'm asking, God, would you not waste our hurts? Like, would you not waste our, our pain and our struggle right now? We, it's hard to make sense of this. And yeah, that's where we are. Like Jacob, I want to run to the promises of God over me and repeat them back to God. God, you said in Romans, you said in Romans 8, that for those who love you, all things work together for good. How in the world can that be right now? Like Jacob, I, I, I have trouble believing the most basic promises of God in our most fearful moments. And yet I'm learning in all of this and even preparing for this sermon. Guys, I, I didn't want to preach this sermon. I don't want to be here right now. Uh, this was doled out in mid-May before Jeremy left. We put together the preaching schedule. And uh, it was about two or three weeks ago that I found out this is the sermon I had. And it was like, oh, okay. God, God is going to force me to deal with these things. And it's good. Like it's, it's been terrible, but it's good. Two things I've found are true of Jacob after this mysterious wrestling match. He's wounded, yes, but he's victorious. 
And second, he's forever changed and he's given a new name. Again, from the quote I read before, Jacob emerged broken, named, and blessed. He limped away from that place with a new identity, a new name, and he would never be the same. Now we read in the scriptures about another man who wrestles with the father, don't we? Jesus in Matthew 26, 38, he took some of his disciples with him to Gethsemane. And he said, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He went a little farther and he prayed, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Urging his disciples to also pray, he moves aside again and he prays, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jake, uh, Jesus knew what was coming. He knew it and he wanted there to be another way. Catch that. Like I want, I want there to be, I want my daughter to live. I want there to be another way. You in your hurts, you're probably feeling, I want there to be another way. And yet Jacob, or Jesus, sorry, Jesus in his humility, he moved forward. He submitted to the will of his father so that sinners like you and me could be reconciled to him. Tim Keller calls Jesus the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved so that we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. So some of you in here, like me, may be wrestling with God right now. You're fighting him as a result of a circumstance in your life or sin that you brought on yourself. You're hurt, you're frustrated, you're confused, and you feel alone. But friends, God is there. He's patiently waiting. He's waiting to bring you to the end of yourself. And guys, it's good that this is so. So if you're there this morning, take hope. If you're not there this morning and you're like, man, life's good. This is kind of heavy for me. Um, Know that as believers, we're not immune to trials and suffering and hurts. We're, We're not guaranteed the good life. We don't get to live our best life now. That life is coming, but it may or may not be right now. And so for you, store his word in your heart. Write these things down and prepare because, listen, there's nothing we could have done to prepare for this summer. It's just day in and day out, being in the word, being in accountability with other believers, being in our missional community, being in our fight club. I I don't know that I would have done any, any different if I had known this was coming. And yet it's good that that when we hit rock bottom to see that Jesus is there, the sovereignty of God is there. Because had we not been in in the middle of this, and again, it's gonna get harder, like it's gonna get worse. Like there's gonna be a a bottom to this bottom. It's good to know that there is some depth there and there is a rock there. The good news for us is that we have a more full picture of the story of God and how we fit into it than even Jacob did, right? Right? We've seen that Jesus lived and died for us. We've seen and know that these pains, these events, these hurts, they are not the end. Jesus has conquered death and the grave so that all who now trust in him would have eternal life. Because of Jesus, we have been given a new name. Celebrate that. We have been given a new name in Jesus. We're forever changed by the reality that the king has come down to gather those he loves and one day we will rule and reign with him forever. 
As a result, this pain, this wrestling, this suffering, it's temporary. Paul tells the church in Corinth, he calls it light and momentary. Nothing about what we're in right now feels light and momentary. And yet in the grand scheme of things, in eternity, it is light and it's momentary. In C.S. Lewis's classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a scene in which Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are preparing the kids to meet Aslan. So, spoiler alert, if you haven't read this yet, earmuffs. Lucy asks the beavers, is Aslan a man? A man, said Mr. Beaver, like, how could you call him a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Well, that you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. So then Lucy chimes in again. So he isn't safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Like Charles Spurgeon, like Jacob, like C.S. Lewis, like a whole host of other Christians from eternity past, present, and future, we know now, or we one day will know, that God is not safe, but he's good. Restless, tired brother or sister, God hears your prayer. God initiates your struggle and God gives you what you're ultimately searching for, rest for your restless soul. God gives you victory in defeat. So in your weakness, here's the question, in your weakness, will you submit to him? Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for we're so thankful for the scriptures and that really in in all of life, everything that we deal with, your word speaks to that. And I'm especially thankful now that in the midst of suffering and great trial, that we're not alone. I'm thankful for the promise that, yeah, it may not be easy, but you're there. It's better that we be somewhere that's hard and difficult with you and somewhere easy and comfortable without you. And so help us to believe these truths. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room who are hurting, that they would press into this wrestling match they're having, that they would not run from it because you're probably gonna chase them down later on anyways, right? But God, help us to press into the wrestling And I pray for those of us in this room who, it just seems like life is good right now. God, I pray that you help them to store up your word in their heart and help them to press into your word on a regular basis and to establish disciplines in the faith so that when trials come, when suffering comes, that you're there and they know it and they trust you and it's a safe place. Pray all this in Jesus' name. 
Amen.